Christ Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Blessed is the name of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, look with mercy on your family, for whom our Lord Jesus Christ was willing to be betrayed and given over to the hands of sinners and to suffer death on the cross. 
and who now lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Our first reading is taken from the book of the prophet Isaiah, the 52nd chapter, beginning at the 13th verse, and continuing through the 12th verse of the 53rd chapter. 
listen for the word of God to us this day. See, my servant shall prosper, he shall be exalted and lifted up, and shall be very high. Just as there were many who were astonished at him, so marred was his appearance beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of mortals, so he should startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which had not been told them they shall see, and that which they had not heard they shall contemplate. Who has believed what we have heard, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering, acquainted with infirmity, and as one from whom others hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. And yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. For he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, each of us have turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. When you make his life an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. Through him the will of the Lord shall prosper. Out of his anguish we shall see light. He shall find satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Here ends the first reading.
The second reading is taken from the book of Hebrews, the 10th chapter, verses 16 through 25. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. He also adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. May God bless to our hearing and our understanding this reading of God's holy word.
Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Many years ago, on an Easter Sunday, I had the bright idea of preaching on the phrase in the Apostles' Creed, He arose again from the dead. As I was writing, though, I kept coming back to the phrase, He descended into hell. Because honestly, how can one faithfully get to he is risen unless we have first acknowledged that he was crucified, dead, and buried? The problem was it took me nearly three quarters of the sermon to get into the descent into hell. And I distinctly remember standing in that pulpit on a beautiful spring day and thinking to myself, here are all of these people, all of these young people at an Easter service with their children full of life and vitality. And I am going on and on about the suffering of God and the descent into hell. I have never second-guessed a sermon more in my life. But we will come back to that. Those are the claims of faith, that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Scripture teaches, as we just heard, that Jesus was dragged before the law, sentenced, and then summarily executed. The sequence of events is not hard to follow. But he descended into hell? That claim is topped only by he arose again from the dead. For many, such a claim seems either too awful to be true, the descent into hell, or too good to be true, that he arose from the dead. However, despite our difficulty sometimes in wrapping our minds around both the fact of the descent into hell as well as the rising from the dead, we are dealing with the mysteries of the resurrection when we make such proclamations. So this Good Friday, let's look again 
at both of these claims because they express the very nature of who God is. And we are met here in the hopes of encountering that God. I will caution you, this does mean we will have to swim in the deep end theologically. This will be something of a helicopter ride over Christian theology. But I want us to be ready for Easter so that we may know what it is we are really saying when we herald the good news of the resurrection. That requires us to know as much as we can of who God is, and consequently, if we are to believe Calvin, who we are as well, in light of that knowledge. Let's begin by retooling our understanding of hell. Setting aside jokes and Halloween costumes involving devils, we have much to reconsider. Hell is a shady concept, biblically. I don't mean shady in the sense of suspect. I mean shady in the sense that we don't really know very much about it. Much of what we have associated through the years with hell, with our images of hell, is either unbiblical or it comes from apocalyptic literature, such as Revelation, which is a category of biblical literature that was never intended to be taken word for word, literally. Most conceptualization of hell that we have today has little basis in a responsible reading of the Bible. Our images come to us from literature or perhaps from the screen. They are typically garnered from revivalist preaching or from Dante's Inferno or from Greek mythology. These images are evocative, to be sure, but they are generally unbiblical. And consequently, for the purposes of Christian theology, unreliable. The ancient Hebrews had a very shadowy understanding of the afterlife, generally value-neutral, called Sheol. Little was defined about Sheol. It was simply the place of the dead. By the time of Christ, an understanding of an afterlife was beginning to develop, but for us to place a more fully developed understanding of heaven and hell on it, such as we might have today, would be completely anachronistic to the time of Jesus. Now, the word we most often translate as hell from the New Testament is Gehenna, and it is a transliteration of an Aramaic term, Hinnom, which refers to the Valley of Hinnom, which is just outside of Jerusalem. It was a place that was used as a garbage dump where people would burn their trash, hence the imagery of the fire that never goes out. My point is this. Whatever images we have come to absorb about hell, 
generally, the Bible is more reticent to define it than we are. Thus, the best definition is not geographical, it is experiential. And with that, we come to the modern era and how modern Christian theology has come to conceptualize the notion of hell. Simply put, hell is the experience, is the state of experiencing God's absence and God's abandonment. To say then, as we do, that Jesus descended into hell is to make a rather astonishing claim. Jesus lived his life according to doctrine, according to scripture, in perfect communion with God and with humanity. And yet our theology, our creed, claims he descended into hell. Where is the fairness in that? Where is the justice in that? I mean, we who are regularly at odds with our neighbors and rarely in communion with God blunder through life giving little consideration to even the conceptualization of hell, unless, of course, we believe we are experiencing it, and yet doctrine teaches that the holy, sinless Jesus experienced it, experienced it in all of its fullness. Jesus descended into hell, the creed teaches. What are we to make of that? And how do we reconcile it with our faith? We will bump into mystery soon, where we will not be able to say anything more without risking saying it wrong. But we haven't gotten there yet. Jesus descended into hell. Calvin himself associated the descent into hell with the experience of God abandonment that Jesus cried out about from the cross when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever felt adrift, rudderless, has pain ever threatened to envelop you and to crowd out all experiences of joy and goodness from your life? Has loneliness ever pressed in so heavily that you felt no one could share your isolation. If any of these experiences have come to you in your life, you have but a hint of what the Bible means by hell. The experience of God abandonment. And Jesus the creed tells us, descended into hell. 
Calvin goes on in the Institutes of the Christian Religion to ask the question, what good would salvation be if God did not experience the depths of human suffering? But the Creed says he did. That Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. And do you know why this statement is a statement of gospel? It is gospel because it is good news. It is good news because it is the declaration that there is no place we may go where God has not been. There is nowhere we may go where God is not with us. Do you remember the words of the psalmist? If I take the wings of the morning and settle in the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. If I make my bed in Sheol, your hand shall hold me fast. We may make this claim because there is nowhere that God will not go for us. But what does that mean? What does that mean in practical terms? What does that mean when we say that Jesus descended to hell? To answer this, we must seek to understand in some way who God is. Uh, God is perfect communion. God is not incomplete without creation. God is complete in and of God's self. In the classical language, the language we use at baptism, God is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Dancing in a constant, loving embrace, community and unity simultaneously. God is love, expressed through God's very own self-definition in community. And God created humankind out of the overflowing of all this love that binds God together in unity and in community. And despite being created out of the overflowing of that love, in sin we rejected that loving communion. And nonetheless, God decided to save us. Save us from what, you may ask? Save us from God? No, God did not reject us. We rejected God. But that is the definition of sin. That is the state of brokenness from which we cannot extricate ourselves. Put it bluntly, we broke God's heart, and we still do. Save us from ourselves is more like it. God's anger, which we read about in the Bible, if we will pay very close attention, is not capricious, and neither is it arbitrary. God created us to be a certain way, to 
live in communion with God and with neighbor. That's what it means to be human. And yet, we chose to live lives less than, to live beneath the humanity for which God created us, as if God's purposes for us were not good purposes, but God desires for us to be in communion. And so God gives us the law. That is the purpose of the law as we encounter it in the Hebrew Scriptures. It is not a playbook. It is not a measuring stick, and it is certainly not a bludgeon. The law, as given in the Hebrew Scriptures, is a gift from God, a gift designed to lead God's people into a deep and abiding community to show us how we might live with one another so that we might reflect that very loving community for which God created us. That's why God gives the law. That's why God creates community. Except that we just didn't get it. We just didn't get it. And we still don't. And since this is something of a helicopter ride over Christian thought, we will skip the major and minor prophets and all of the wisdom of the Old Testament and move ahead quite a bit. But bear in mind this. The Bible is God's love story with humankind in spite of ourselves. And so as we skip ahead, we come to the realization that God came to us. That is the incarnation as simply as I can put it. That God came to us because we were unable to go to God. As the nativity stories that we celebrate at Christmas remind us, Jesus Christ is Emmanuel. God with us. That brings us now to the ministry of Jesus. The creed moves very quickly from born of the Virgin Mary, which, by the way, is an assertion of Jesus' humanity. People often use it to, to say that that is a proof that Jesus is divine. It is, in fact, not the purpose of that clause in the creed. It is to remind us that Jesus was born of a woman just as everyone in this room is born of a woman and then it moves quickly on to he suffered under Pontius Pilate. And yet in between, we have all of the stories of Jesus' ministry, the stories of how he, he taught us, how he healed us, how he loved us. You see, in his living, Jesus showed us what it is to be truly human, to live deeply in communion with one another and to live deeply in communion with God, to love God and to rely entirely on God's grace. You see, when we are saying that Jesus is fully human, we aren't referring to his genetic material, even though it's the same as ours. Instead, we are referring to his way of life, to his, me, his, his being, his way of existing in communion. Communion defined by love of God and love of neighbor. We just didn't seem to be able to get the message any other way, and so God took it upon God's self to come and to Show us. And we rejected that humanity in favor of inhumanity.
He was crucified, dead, and buried. Here we get into the very deep water of Trinitarian theology, but let's not run up the flag of mystery just yet. Let's linger with that just a moment more. Consider, God's nature is communion. God has chosen in self-definition to live in perpetual love within God's own being, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That is who God is. In the overflowing of love for God's fallen creation, the Son became incarnate, and we killed him. For Christians who want to grapple with the descent into hell, we must come face to face with the fact that the rejection of Jesus by humankind is the rejection of God. He descended into hell. And this is the moment where we come face to face with mystery. Because we cannot know what it is for God to experience hell. Theories are offered, citing the cry of dereliction from the cross. You know the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We will never know fully what that means. Scholars have tried, but it is unclear. What is clear, though, is that we cannot satisfy ourselves with a facile understanding of it. We must absorb the enormity of that which we cannot understand. What we can remember is this, that there is nowhere God has not been for us and with us, and there is nowhere that God will not go for us and with us. In the crucifixion, God took on all the sin of the world that we might be redeemed. In Jesus Christ, God took on all of the hurt and pain and the isolation of humankind that we might never again believe that we are alone in suffering because God always goes with us. We cannot understand the resurrection unless we get there by way of the cross. And we must arrive at the cross honestly. That is the only way we can say with integrity and with conviction Easter morning that he arose again from the dead. There are numerous classical theories of atonement that attempt to understand the resurrection from a transactional standpoint. The resurrection can only be understood from the standpoint of grace. God is love, 
says John, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. And God is also just, and justice, rightly conceived, is based in love. So on Easter morning, when we proclaim that God has raised this Jesus from the dead, we express not only God's love, but also God's justice. You know, the Bible is sparse in its details about that, too. Have you ever noticed there are no witnesses of the resurrection? There are only witnesses to the resurrection. But know this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is completely consistent with who God is and God's self-definition of love. Do you think not? Well, think back. Think back over who God has always been. God has always been characterized by justice and mercy and redemption. It is God's nature to be redeeming. The magisterial theologians were concerned that if we concentrated too hard on God's nature being redemptive, we might lose the graciousness of the fact that God decided to save us. God didn't have to. Remember, God is complete in and of itself, in and of God's self. God decided to save us because that is consistent with who God is. No, we cannot arrive at the resurrection except by a cross, and the fullness of all that that cross means bears understanding so that we can indeed proclaim that because he arose again from the dead, we know who God is again. We know again that God is the God of justice and love and redemption and that nothing, not even death, as the Apostle Paul says, can overcome God's love and justice and redemption, not even death. From the moment of this Holy Friday, we will go out into a world that will try to tell us a different story. It will try to entice us to a belief that we can forget that corny old love story about God and humanity. It will offer us a more enticing narrative. It will be a narrative where you can choose your own salvation, the means and the mechanism of it. Forget that old fool story about a God who suffers and dies. Here, instead, is a God who is a, a mighty warrior, a God who will be strong in battle. Forget all of that blathering nonsense about the least of these. Here is a story that you can absorb about self-determination and motivation. Here is a prosperity gospel for you. The world will give you all of those alternatives. There are plenty of alternatives to the true good news of the gospel. Sometimes they will make more sense to us. Sometimes they will seem easier to understand than the deepest mysteries of the descent into hell and the resurrection from the dead. Frequently, they will be more palatable because they make no demand upon us and they upset no apple carts whatsoever. And these alternatives to the gospel that you will hear out there have always been around and they have always been appealing and many have chosen them. But they all share one thing in common. They are not 
the gospel. Because the gospel must always be good news for everyone. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. After that Easter sermon, the one that I second-guessed, it became tragically clear to me why that sermon was the sermon that I had to preach that day. Three days later, our community was plunged into mourning by the death of a little girl. As my associate and I walked up the door to meet with the parents to plan her funeral, we were greeted with only two words, two of the most plaintive words I have ever heard. They echo in my ears even now. Her mother opened the door and said to us only, Help me. And the only help we could give is the only help that mattered. To be able to bear witness that we know a suffering God, a God who suffers alongside us, a God who has been to the depths of hell so that we might understand that there are no depths to which we may descend that God is not with us. Only then, only when we understand this, can we meaningfully say, on the third day, he arose again from the dead. So this holy day, this Good Friday, do not fear, only trust. Trust in the gracious mercy of God who left us not to the abyss of our sin, but decided to save us. Trust in the mercy of God who went down to death for us and was raised so that we too might experience newness of life. Because that is who God is. And in the light of these things, we know who we may be because we have dared to be honest with ourselves about who God is. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
let us pray. Beloved people of God, as Jesus stretched out his arms on the cross to offer light and salvation to all, let us pray for the world that God loves so much. Let us pray for the church throughout the world. Almighty and eternal God, you have shown your glory to all nations in Christ Jesus. By your Holy Spirit, guide the church and gather it throughout the world. Help it to persevere in faith, proclaim your name, and bring good news of salvation in Christ to all people. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let us pray for this presbytery and congregation. Almighty and eternal God, your spirit guides the church and makes it holy. Strengthen and uphold ministers and other leaders. Keep them in health and safety for the good of the church. Help each of us to do faithfully the work to which you have called us. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let us pray for those preparing for baptism. Almighty and eternal God, you continue to bless the church with new members. Increase the faith and understanding of those preparing for baptism. Give them new birth as your children. Keep them in the faith and communion of your holy church. Make all the baptized one in the fullness of faith. And keep us united in the fellowship of love. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let us pray for people of other faiths. Almighty and eternal God, gather into your embrace all those who call out to you under different names, bring an end to interreligious strife, and make us faithful in our witness to the love you have made known to us in your Son. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let us pray for those who cannot believe. Almighty and eternal God, you created humanity so that all might long to know you and find peace in you. Grant that all may recognize signs of your love and grace in the world 
and in the lives of Christians and gladly acknowledge you as the one true God. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let us pray for God's creation. O my people, O my church, what more could I have done for you? Answer me. I led you out of slavery into freedom and delivered you through the waters of rebirth, but you have made a cross for your Savior. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy immortal one, have mercy upon us. Forty years I led you through the desert, feeding you with manna on the way. I saved you from the time of trial and made you, gave you my body, the bread of heaven, but you have made a cross for your Savior. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy immortal one, have mercy upon us. I led you on your way in a pillar of cloud and fire, but you led me to the judgment hall of Pilate. I guided you by the light of the Holy Spirit, but you made a cross for your Savior. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy immortal one, have mercy upon us. I planted you as my fairest vineyard, but you brought forth bitter fruit. I made you branches of the vine and never left your side, but you have made a cross for your Savior. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy immortal one, have mercy upon us. I poured out saving water from the rock, but you gave me vinegar to drink. I poured out my life and gave you the new covenant in my blood, but you have made a cross for your Savior. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy immortal one, have mercy on us. I gave you a royal scepter, but you gave me a crown of thorns. I gave you the kingdom and crowned you with eternal life, but you have made a cross for your Savior. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy immortal one, have mercy upon us. I struck down your enemies, but you struck my head with the reed. I gave you my peace, but you draw the sword in my name, and you have made a cross for your Savior. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy immortal one, have mercy upon us. I opened the waters to lead you to the promised land, but you opened my side with a spear. 
I washed your feet as a sign of my love, but you have made a cross for your Savior. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy, immortal one, have mercy upon us. I lifted you up to the heights, but you lifted me high on the cross. I raised you from death and prepared for you the tree of life, but you have made a cross for your Savior. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy, immortal one, have mercy upon us. I grafted you into my people Israel, but you made them scapegoats for your own guilt, and you have made a cross for your Savior. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy, immortal one, have mercy upon us. I was hungry, and you gave me no food, thirsty, and you gave me no drink, a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. You have made a cross for your Savior. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy immortal one, have mercy upon us.